Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. When I was a pastor at Grace Lutheran in Crescent City, California, my church secretary started the tradition of printing the uh, daily lectionary up in our Sunday bulletin. As soon as I told her about that lectionary, the old one in Lutheran worship, she said, oh, it'd be good to put that in the bulletin so everybody knows what they ought to be reading day by day. And then I found that that's actually a dangerous thing to do because people might actually read those lessons and then come to me, their pastor, uh, with questions uh, about stuff they never knew was in the Bible. I remember when they were reading the Torah, when, that was the, when it was the five books of Moses, uh, these stories that are supposed to be so familiar, people would come to me and I can remember, you know, pastor, uh, why do we need to know about Lot and his daughters? Or about Judah and his daughter-in-law? Or pastor, uh, was it good or bad when Simeon and Levi killed all the Shechemites? And uh, there was one guy in my congregation, he was a convert sort of from, you might say, neo-paganism, unchurched. And he took uh, with a special delight these readings because he wasn't acquainted at all with the scripture lessons. And he had a very unique way of asking these questions. Uh, he would basically sort of repeat the story and turn it into a question. So it'd be, hey, pastor, I, you know, I was reading Exodus and it was this part about how Moses, after he's called, is going back to, to, to Egypt and he's in the lodging place and then God comes and tries to kill him? He's all, what? <laughs> and uh, I mean, how do you answer that question? I mean, what, what is it doing there? What does it mean? And uh, in today's lesson, the latter part, it was another one of these where I remember he came to me that week and he said, yeah, pastor, I was reading in Exodus 33. And uh, yeah, Moses wanted to see Yahweh's glory, you know, the glory of the Lord. And, uh, and then, you know, he puts Moses in the cleft of a rock and covers him up. And then he like passes by and Moses can't see anything, but he sees his back. And he said, I was you know, looking in a, in a study Bible and they said back, you know, means something else. And uh, what? <clears throat> I think we had a conversation and I hope I didn't mislead him. Uh, but uh, I mean, this was one of those uh, passages that for him was one of those what passages. And there were a lot more of those that came when he got into Leviticus and then into Numbers. It's like, what? What is going on here? And uh, one of the things that struck him, though, was not just, you know, kind of the weirdness of this story, but, you know, that, well, this text seems to not be written very well because it seems to be openly contradictory. I mean, you have that part that John read first about how you have the tent of meeting and Moses goes and speaks to the Lord face to face. But then on the mountain, the Lord says, you can't see my face. Paradox, well, I'm not gonna to try to resolve the paradox here, sorry. Uh, you can deal with that when you take uh, Exodus and the Torah. But you know, another paradox, maybe a little sharper, is that you know, that story that John began with sort of has sort of the Lord imminently present. He's got the tent outside the camp where he's there and you can count on him coming to speak to Moses and then to the people. And yet that story is framed by a narrative where the Lord is telling Moses, I don't want to lead these people anymore. I'm gonna send somebody else to do it, but my presence won't be with them. And so you've got this story about his presence in front of them and then on both sides, a narrative about how the Lord doesn't want to be there. To which you might say, what? Well, 
I think we understand the narrative and what's going on. In Exodus 32, the covenant made back in Exodus 24 has been broken, and this broken marriage has come about because one party has sinned. It's a one-sided problem. They made a golden calf, and they said, this is the God that has led us out of Egypt. And their covenant relationship with the Lord was shattered. Now, if you remember, God originally wanted a permanent divorce with Israel. Actually, he wanted to kill them all and start all over with Moses. But Moses talked him out of that. And so in chapter 33, uh, the Lord seems to be doing like a second worst scenario. Now he wants sort of a permanent uh, separation. The marriage continues, but I'm not going to be there. My presence isn't going to be there to lead them. I'm going to send somebody else. And Moses is trying to talk the Lord, you might say, back into the house. Imagine a a marriage that's been ruptured because one party betrayed the other. And here's Moses' job. He's trying to talk to the offended party and trying to talk them, not just back into the marriage, but back into the house so that the Lord would be there to lead them. And, you know, the logic that he's using isn't, they're really sorry. You ought to forgive them. And it's not, you know, I bet this will never happen again. You ought to come back. No, the logic that he's used in chapter 32 and now 33 is, you made a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You got to keep that promise. You rescued these people from Egypt. They're your people. That can't change. What would everybody else say if you killed them? And now, what would everybody else say if you stopped leading them? And then kind of a strange argument. Not only that, but you called me. You called me to lead them. And how can I know that this is going to happen if your presence is not here? And now this may be perhaps the sharpest paradox in this whole lesson. It's not so much face-to-face, you can't see my face, but it's that, you know, the Lord identifies himself to Moses as, you can't see my face, and yet it's Moses who prevails. It's Moses who turns the heart of Yahweh back to his people. And so here is, you know, God in his full transcendence and glory. You can't see my face, and yet it's Moses, the man he picked. He's the one who prevails, and Yahweh listens to Moses and agrees to do what Moses said. And so you might say that the offended husband has come back into the house just as the mediator asked him to. Of course, this does sort of explain Moses' concern, his request to see Yahweh's glory, because things have changed with the golden calf, with that shattering of the covenant. And Moses wants this other sign. And he asks to see God's glory, and God says, uh, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim my name before you, before your face, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy, compassion, to whom I will show mercy, compassion. But you cannot see my face. I remember that gentleman in my congregation, uh, he called this a non-event initially. He said, you know, Moses asked to see God's glory, and God, in response, doesn't show him his glory. What? 
But it's kind of interesting, at that place where Moses would have seen his face, that is when Yahweh instead proclaims, Yahweh, I will show, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, I will show compassion to whom I will show compassion. And then when this seems to take place in the next chapter, it's the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love, his covenant faithfulness for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third generation. And so the book of Exodus ends with God's glory, his kavod, coming upon the tabernacle, and they lived happily ever after. Well, that's the problem. Uh, Israel is saved because of what Moses does in mediating and trying to intervene for them. But as you continue to read into Leviticus and Numbers, a lot of Israelites aren't saved. In fact, two people from that generation go into the promised land, the second generation, and not even all of them. So notice, uh, the Lord is a God who remembers his covenant faithfulness and his truth, but he has not become a pushover. And those Israelites who continue to openly rebel and to openly worship other gods and to openly complain, they get it, and that whole generation is left dead in the wilderness. Kind of interesting. It's not good to be outside the people of God, but what does it mean to be in the people of God? Well, Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 tells us that these things were written for our instruction. Uh, for you who are gathered here today, you, God's people, gathered here today. Now, if you're like me, you weren't a descendant of Israel in the first place. And your story was not told in Exodus, it was told in Romans 1, 18 and following. In other words, you were by nature children of wrath before God in the grace of Jesus called you to be his own. All of you Gentiles who are here, who are not a part of that covenant people, God's mercy is spilled out in a very wonderful way when it has come to you. Those people who would have never expected to be saved by the God of Israel. Today I can tell you that God is gracious to whom he will be gracious. He shows mercy to whom he will show mercy, and you are those people to whom he has shown this mercy. He has called you by the gospel of his son Jesus. And what is it that John's gospel says of Jesus? We have beheld his glory, glory of the one and only from the Father, full of grace, Kessid and truth, emeth. The very things Yahweh identifies himself as having in Exodus 34 is revealed fully in our Lord Jesus. This Jesus who has brought in the kingdom of God and who has redeemed you, who gave his life as a ransom for you, who has resurrected and will return for you. This Jesus has saved you and God has revealed his grace and his mercy fully in Jesus for you. You are his people. And yet, remember Exodus, remember Leviticus and Numbers, 
These things were written for your instruction. Uh, the Father of Jesus Christ is not a pushover. Some people say, you know, something happened between the old and the new, and Yahweh Elohim, who is this brutal guy, suddenly became a cosmic muffin when Jesus came, a nice guy who just loves everybody. And uh, he doesn't get mad at sin anymore, you know? I mean, uh, so sin away. Well, we know Paul said not to, but, uh, well, no, I mean, ask Annas and Sapphira in, in, in Acts 5, you know, what they would say about that. Uh, no, he's the same God. He takes the guilt of those who rebel against him seriously, but he's the same God who richly forgives the sins, the transgressions, and the rebellions of those who repent. And so, though we Lutherans confess that we daily sin much and need much forgiveness, uh, we should not let this become an excuse to daily sin much. Uh, we too should mindfully avoid all forms of gross idolatry. And as Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11, all gross sins on the horizontal level and how we treat one another. Because you are the covenant people of God that he has called, that he has shown mercy and compassion to, and that he has made his own. And you too may not have seen, you have not seen the glory of God, but you've received the gospel of Jesus and you've heard with your ears the glorious message of how God has redeemed the world and reconciled it to himself in Christ, how he has reconciled his people Israel to himself in Christ, and how he has reconciled you to himself in Christ, so that you might live as his people and follow him as he leads. May the Lord God, our Heavenly Father, keep you steadfast in this faith and in this life, both now and unto life everlasting. Amen. We stand for prayer.